Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we start with Glenn Ligon. He's the curator of Blue Black at the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis. Informed by the Pulitzer's Ellsworth Kelly wall sculpture Blue Black, Ligon's exhibition features more than 50 artworks that use color to address questions related to language, identity, and more. The show is on view through October 7th. The catalog of the exhibition is complimentary, save the cost of shipping, which is 7 bucks in the U.S., $14 abroad. We'll have a link to that on manpodcast.com. Ligon's 2011 mid-career survey was organized by the Whitney Museum of American Art and traveled to LACMA and the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. His work has been featured in solo exhibitions at the Power Plant in Toronto, the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis, and the Studio Museum in Harlem. On the second segment, Stephen Brown discusses Florine Stettheimer painting poetry, an exhibition at the Jewish Museum in New York that he co-curated. It's on view there through September 24th. But first, Glenn Ligon, after a break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Paint the Revolution, Mexican Modernism, 1910-1950, the most comprehensive exhibition of modern Mexican art displayed in the United States in more than seven decades, featuring some 175 works and including masterpieces by Frida Kahlo, Jose Clemente Orozco, Diego Rivera, and Rufino Tamayo. Now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org revolution for more. Singer-songwriter Steve Gunn performs at the Getty Center on Saturday, July 29th at 6 p.m. as part of the 2017 Off the 405 Outdoor Summer Concert Series. Enjoy Gunn's signature blend of country blues, underground, and psych in this guitar-forward rock performance. Bringing some of today's most exciting bands to the stage, the Getty presents an evening of live music and stunning architecture and breathtaking sunset views. Learn more about this show and other upcoming performances at getty.edu slash 360. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents the West Coast premiere of Marissa Mertz, The Sky is a Great Space, following its celebrated run at the Met in New York. Bringing together five decades of work, the exhibition explores the prodigious talent and influence of the Italian painter, sculptor, and installation artist, Marissa Mertz. Co-organized by the Hammer and the Met, This first U.S. retrospective exhibition of Mertz's work is on view June 4th through August 20th at the Hammer Museum. Also on view this season, Living Apart Together, featuring recent acquisitions from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, including Dato Moriyama. Details online at hammer.ucla.edu. And we're back. Glenn Ligon, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I understand the great Ellsworth Kelly Blue Black at the Pulitzer is the show's motivating glue, if you will, and that the beginning of the process that led to this show, you found yourself thinking of a Louis Armstrong line when you when you saw the Kelly. But in thinking of your own work and the Blue Black idea, how long did it take you to get to or decide that your 1990 painting untitled I Do Not Always Feel Colored, which is in the Whitney's collection, was a good fit? It was a good fit because it is drawn in a bluish black oil stick. So it wasn't the first thing I thought of for inclusion in the show, but it fit sort of visually and conceptually. So your first thought in terms of including that work was the the color 
of the work, not the content of the Zora Neale Hurston essay you were quoting? Well, the Zora Neale Hurston essay doesn't reference the blues specifically, though it does reference music and passage in the essay. And But that wasn't a thought about the inclusion of the work. No, it was just sort of an interesting idea about the connection between blackness as a color and blackness as a racial category, but the text in the painting actually not being black, being sort of bluish black, kind of black, if you will. And so that was sort of the motivating factor for putting in the show. Is is the material on the painting blue-black because you mixed some blue in with the black, or is it just naturally? No, that's just the color. <laughs> just the paint's gray, um, and it reads as black uh, when it's dense, but when it is less dense, it reads bluish. There, there were two avenues of blue, black, color, and not that I wanted to ask about in relation to this show and some of the works you picked. Let me start with the, with the Zora Neale Hurston pathway. That, that essay, the essay from which you quote in that painting, might be said to reject Du Bois's idea of double consciousness, which is an idea that subjugated or suppressed people in an oppressive society face an internal conflict between seeing themselves as the dominant society does and seeing themselves through their own eyes, as, as Du Bois puts it. Are there places in this show where you're using the show's motivating artwork and your response to it to engage that idea? Didn't think about Du Bois at all in relationship to the show. Never came up. I, I think, you know, if you think about sort of Hurston's biography, she grew up in an all-black town in Florida, and she says that when she left that town, the Zora that she was became, you know, a black girl. And so, but she's still in the United States. So I think it's sort of an interesting kind of, you know, notion in that essay is that race coloredness is about positioning and uh, where one finds oneself. And, and which means that race as a category is not something internal and essential, but depends on one's position. It's relational, I guess. You know, so Du Bois and Constance didn't really come into thinking about the show, though they may be there, but that wasn't really what I was thinking about. I was thinking about those two colors. Well, I, I, to explain why I had a guess that that Du Bois was on your mind was I, I read in Hillary Sheets's New York Times story about the show that one of the first paintings you selected was the Carrie James Marshall painting of a police officer that is now at the Museum of Modern Art. Can you maybe elaborate on why you thought of that painting quickly within within the theme and was it as literal as a black officer wearing a blue uniform and the relationship between blue and and the police, the police are, are, you know. Well, Carrie James Marshall's whole project is really thinking about, in terms of painting, I guess, thinking about the range of expressiveness of black as a color. So that's one of the things I was interested in in relationship to that painting, that his figures are very black as opposed to other traditional portraiture where skin color is, is represented more naturalistically. So I was interested in that. 
and police uniforms tend to be blue or black. So that was interesting to me. But also, I think, given the political climate that we live in, given the rash of unjustified police killings, it is interesting for me to think about like Harry James Marshall at that moment chose to depict a black policeman, though he doesn't really paint white figures in his paintings. But I just thought it was an interesting moment for him to choose that. And I think it was an interesting moment to, you know, that depiction of the black policeman sort of unreadable. He's just sitting on his patrol car. He seems sort of, when I first saw the painting at MoMA, I thought, well, this is sort of like my uncle who was a policeman sitting on the hood of his patrol car. So it's not simply that I picked the painting because it was blue and black, it's to pick the painting because it had a sort of kind of complexity to it. It was not also the first painting that I decided to put in the show, because as you know, when you're putting together a wish list of what you want to show, there's no guarantee you're going to get it. So there's a lot of negotiation. You know, you put out your wish list and you see what comes back. Certainly, he was in, you know, that painting in particular was in the top 20, but there was no guarantee I was going to actually get it for the show. So, but I was really glad it did because it plays beautifully with other figurative work that's in the exhibition. It's a really great painting. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. Leaving Du Bois behind, I want to raise something Stanley Whitney talked about when he was on the program back in January. And he talked about how it was a, a key point in his journey as an artist and his willingness to be an abstract painter at a time when that seemed uh, an unusual route for a black painter to go was when he realized that color didn't just have to be, be color, but that a couple hundred years of American culture had led to colors having specific meanings when used in certain ways. Is that in this show? Is that idea in this show? Yeah, I mean, I think it's in a lot of the works, you know, but if we go back to Harry James Marshall, the deliberateness, the deliberateness which he uses the color black is political. It's not accidental. It's not that he doesn't have brown in the studio. So, yeah, of course, that, that plays into the way that some of the work in the show is thought about by the artists that make them. And in other works, I'm probably not, or less so. Ellsworth Kelly was not, probably, I don't know. But from the reading I've done and talking to his husband, I don't think that Ellsworth Kelly was specifically thinking about, you know, the blues when he made Blue Black. But those colors in the context in which I found them triggered those associations. And so that was kind of the, the what was interesting to me about kind of thinking about Ellsworth Kelly through that kind of lens. In your own work, do you think about, I mean, obviously you use a lot of the color black in your work, but when you use other colors, particularly in painting, are you interested in the cultural associations of those colors or are you using and selecting colors more for their formal relevance in a, in a given place? There's a series of paintings I did using Richard Pryor jokes. It seemed to me that those paintings needed to be in color. They didn't make sense to me in black and white. But it's also, they were sort of the moment where I was thinking about uh, Andy Warhol 
self-portraits from the 60s and the color combinations he used in them. So they were a kind of nod to that kind of unlimited, you know, every color in the crayon box kind of color sensibility that Warhol had. So I was sort of channeling that through these Richard Pryor texts. But I started out as an abstract painter in some ways, I guess I still am, and I started out using color. So I think the color in those paintings was a way to get back to that idea. In text paintings that use black on white grounds, it was simply about that's the way most text looks in books. And, and perhaps in, in the context of that Zora Neale Hurston essay we were talking about earlier, she writes about how she was thrown against a sharp white background standing out in certain contexts. And it's easy to make that association with that 1990 painting. I'm glad you mentioned uh, the Richard Pryor paintings. Um, there's one from 1996. So these are paintings of, of Richard Pryor jokes where the, where the text is legible throughout. These aren't text paintings that become abstract by the time you get to the bottom of the canvas. And one of the 1996 paintings is on a blue background. Did you select blue for one of your prior text backgrounds because he's he was working blue? Are you playing with that association of the color and the word? I'm sorry, I don't know what you mean. Working blue. Working comedians who work blue swear or you know refer to a range of things an audience might find uncomfortable, and and prior did. No, I I was simply interested in like that color, <laughs> blue, and whatever. I mean, I don't remember the specific painting you're talking about, but that color blue with uh, other colors on top of it. So it's formal more than anything else. Let me let me go back to the prior paintings. You told Simon Grant for Tate etc. that David Hammonds's work was important for you in freeing you up to do the prior paintings. Simon didn't didn't follow up and ask how and why, but um, I'd like to. Why why did Hammonds point the way or make it possible for you to do the prior paintings? Well, I think because Hammonds is really interested in very complicated ways in jokes and language. You see that in his titles, and you see that in kind of the materials that he uses. And he's also deeply interested in kind of teasing out or playing with or hiding elements of African-American culture. At some point, he says, you know, people know I'm black. I don't have to put my blackness in the work. Now I'm trying to hide it. So, you know, and how that manifests, you know, is really interesting. They're doing black and blue, okay? An exhibition that is just empty gallery spaces that you walk through with the aid of a little blue flashlight. That work has been read as, you know, being deeply embedded in an investigation of African-American culture, but there's literally nothing there to see. So I'm really interested in this kind of punning in Hammonds, but also I think he's not afraid of using any material that comes to hand. And I think for me, because Richard Pryor had been such a important part of my childhood, listening to albums and things like that, I thought, well, it's material to be used. So even if it's going to offend some people, it's still really rich, poignant, political material to be used. So 
that's kind of the connection between sort of Hammond's fearlessness about materials and his interest in language and how I got to the Richard Pryor painting. There's a Hammond's in, in the show at the Pulitzer, The New Black from 2014. Why that one? It's blue and black. That simple? <laughs> no, it's never that simple, but that's, you know, that's the simple answer. It's blue and black. I mean, the show is called blue-black, blue, so that's kind of one of the things about the show, that the work has to engage those two colors. It just happens that there was, you know, there was that tarp painting that had those two colors in it and was made available to me, so there it is. Are there other places in your oeuvre where Hammond's pointed the way to something? One of, one of the places where both you and Hammond's have, have, you know, met on the field, so to speak, are in works about boxing. Did Hammond's work on boxing maybe open that up for you, or would you have been interested in in boxing anyway, perhaps? Well, I don't think I thought about Hammond's in relationship to boxing, whatever work I've done in boxing in particular. I would say that the influence is more directly in neons and the sort of notion of in Hammond's work of black light, starting with Concerto in Black and Blue, but in other pieces too, sort of. How do you illuminate blackness? So that, I think, thinking about Hammond's work, particularly Concerto on Black and Blue, led me to start thinking about neon more and how I make a neon that was somehow reading as light, but also reading as a sort of, you know, it's, it, it's eclipse or it's black light. I read a lot of interviews you've done in, in preparing to talk to you. And one of the most interesting things I found was in a catalog for the survey of your work that went from the Toronto power plant to the Wexner, Houston, and a few other places about a decade ago. And you told the artist Stephen Andrews, discussing the coal dust or the coal waste that you use in your paintings, that you don't really understand metaphors or didn't early in your career when 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 you you jumped into that work. You know, I, I understand the way interviews get mediated. What What was your relationship to metaphor when you were starting those paintings and did you mean as bluntly as you kind of said it that you just weren't even thinking about it or interested in it at the beginning of the text paintings? It certainly wasn't the first consideration. The first consideration was with those text paintings was I was using Baldwin text. Baldwin sentence structure has a kind of materiality, a weight, you know, those page long sentences that he can write. Also, he was a sort of boy preacher. So there's this biblical thing in his sentence structure. I wanted a material that reflected the not only the sort of like his words, but also the enormity of the subject matter, the gravity of the subject matter, if you will. And so just stenciling with oil stick didn't seem to be enough to me. So that was where the coal dust came in. It was a way to sort of materialize, you know, sort of make an impasto on surfaces. But it also, I guess, because it is a waste material, as you said, it became interesting in relationship to Baldwin's writings and Baldwin's biography and what he said about things on the margin of the culture, uh, being sort of uh, people on the margin of the culture things on the margin of the culture being important places to start with because those those things or those people often have a very 
privileged view of the society as a whole. But that certainly was not what I was thinking about when I started using coal dust, because originally I started by thinking I was going to use diamond dust. As Warhol had. Yeah, but realized that that just wasn't going to work in terms of the paintings I was making, but also Warhol had colonized it as a material, so I had to use something else. So I came to coal dust really just as a, you know, accident in some ways, a printer that I was working with suggested it, and I'd never seen it before. But when I got it, I thought, well, it works well, so I'll start using it. Did you at some point in, in those in, in the process of making those paintings, even if it took many years, become interested in in metaphor? I mean, one of the, you know, I spend a lot of time in, in the American 19th century, and metaphor is so acutely tied to and a functional part of America's northern landscape painting tradition. And so for someone like me, I can't think of metaphor in art without, at least American art, without going back to that period. Were those associations that once you began to think about became interesting or or did not? Well, I mean, coal, coal dust has a lot of sort of metaphoric implications. That's not where I started. So that may be where I ended up or where, where historians will read that work, art historians will you know, read that work, viewers will read that work, but that's, I don't think that's where I started. So yeah, those things are there. Certainly they're there, but they weren't the primary consideration. But you don't need them to be there. Well, you know, I suppose I do need them to be there. They're part of the strength of the work, but they're, as, again, they're not where I started. While we're on those paintings, I think people tend to get so focused on the text that they forget, they tend to forget that part of the canvas or part of the project is that the words dissolve into abstraction. And most of the time when we as viewers or when I as a viewer look at abstract painting, I look at it kind of in an opposite way. As viewers, when we look at an abstraction, we first see the abstraction and maybe because of our brain works, we often find shapes or bodies or landscape or whatever within it. With your painting, we see the words first, and then the abstraction overtakes them, if you will. It's kind of the opposite of what viewers have been conditioned to look for through 80 years of, of abstraction. Was there a painter or painters who guided you toward, toward that order, that, that approach? My early heroes were Klein, de Kooning. I think I came to text because I couldn't be them. You know, I, there was no way to become a first-generation abstract expressionist. It didn't make any sense. Or even fourth-generation abstract expressionist. And so it was simply about the kind of content that I wanted in the work being different from the kind of content that was in a de Kooning painting. And I chose in some ways the most literal way to get that content into the work, which was by using text. But through setting up some kinds of systems, repeating a single sentence over and over again, so it goes to a kind of abstraction, that did a lot of work for me. You know, that allowed me to sort of make abstract paintings in some ways, but it also allowed me to have the kind of content I wanted in those abstract paintings. Were there artists who found ways for there to be content and abstraction who were important to you? I mean, for me, 
I, I think Norman Lewis is a real master of that. I mean, he, he, he figured out how to load up the dominant thing, abstraction, with, with ideas that didn't come from that American big brushy abstraction tradition. You mean important for me when I was first starting to make paintings or important for me now? Ah, well, let's let's how about first when you started making paintings? Well, the, the people I was looking at are the people I named, you know, de Kooning. Who didn't necessarily have a ton of social content in their painting. No. And now, abstract painting now? I don't know if I'm so interested in abstract painting now. I mean, but I'm sure some names will come to mind. I think, you know, Mark Bradford did an amazing installation in Venice this year. I mean, I think in the last 20 years, Ross Blechner is in your show, and, and certainly his 1993 Galaxy painting has has sociological content within it. Um, you mentioned Mark Bradford. I mean, I think it is a place where a number, uh, you know, where, where, where there is some activity. Yeah, definitely. And I think it was incredible to have Ross Blechner in the show, particularly in relationship in the galleries to Derek Jarman's Blue, which was... The, I think for at least the same year as the Bluckner painting was painted. So thinking about, you know, abstractly, it aids as a sort of starting point of content, I think was a sort of nice juxtaposition in the show. So certainly, but did Ross's paintings have any influence on my practice? No, but I admire him as a painter. I also wanted to ask you about a piece, a small body of work that you probably don't talk much about. It's a series of historical markers or faux historical markers you made during an art pace residency in San Antonio in 1998, kind of uh, bronze plaques that you installed throughout the city. We'll have images of them on uh, one or two of them on manpodcast.com. And a few years ago, Lori Furstenberg asked you what happened to them. And you, you said that most of them were removed from their sites uh, surreptitiously, stolen, I guess you could say but that you still had one. And she asked you where it was, and you said under your bed, <laughs> which was a pretty clear signifier that you felt done engaging with, with that kind of monument or marker tradition. And I wonder why. I wonder what about engaging that ended up maybe not working for you. Oh, no, I think the piece worked, and it's been shown again. It's just I did it, and it was made during the specific kind of residency that I had at, at Art Pace in San Antonio. There was an interest in engaging kind of local history there. So those bronze plaques of the type that I made a facsimile of were all over town, sort of marking, you know, kind of battles and historic sites and things like that. And I made them about sort of the ephemeral, you know, just encounters with people that I met on the street. But, you know, <laughs> do things and they're done and that's it. Some, some things end up as broader, longer projects and some things don't. <laughs> I mean, I think, in, you know, in terms of my practice, there has been a sort of interest in history, you know, in the work. So that's there. That series in particular, I think, was was very much about sort of being in San Antonio in that place and came out of thinking about kind of the visual traditions that I saw around me. Well, Glenn Ligon, thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you. 
The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents the world premiere of Gray Matters, May 20th through July 30th. A multifaceted survey organized by the Wex's senior curator of exhibitions, Michael Goodson, the show features 37 contemporary women artists working in shades of gray and marks the midpoint of a year in which the center's entire exhibition program consists solely of women. Through over 50 works, artists including Via Selmans, Ronnie Horn, Nancy Rubens, Arlene Sheckett, Lorna Simpson, and Kara Walker reveal the vibrancy as well as the expressive power in the spectrum between and including black and white. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Doug Aiken Electric Earth through August 20th. It's the first survey to comprehensively examine Aiken's experimentations across media and disciplines. Also, opening on September 23rd, Misty Kiesler Haunt. The exhibition is curated by Andrea Carnes, who describes it as, quote, both beautiful and horrific, and who says that the series magnifies the strangeness of the existence of such places where fantasies are manifested. People desire and will pay for the sensation of fear, and that is a surprising and provocative revelation that comes out in these works. The Modern will host an artist lecture on September 19th at 7 p.m. Welcome back. My next guest is Stephen Brown, the co-curator of Florine Stedheimer Painting Poetry at the Jewish Museum in New York. It's on view through September 24th. Brown co-curated the show with Georgina Ularek at the Art Gallery of Ontario, where the show goes next. The exhibition's catalog was published by Yale University Press. Stephen Brown, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Yes, great to be with you, Tyler. Thanks for having me. So at a time at the beginning of the 20th century when American art was beginning to be attached at the hip to French modernism, but wasn't all the way there yet, Stedheimer, born into a wealthy family, traveled extensively to Europe and not just to France. I think the French modernists that she's looking at and that are informing her are, are, are fairly clear, Matisse, Bernard, and a few others. What non-French modernists informed her and impressed her and do you see in the work? I would say that the experience of art all across Europe in the various cities, cultural cities that she stayed in, had an effect. I think she was probably really one of the most learned artists that we have in the 20th century, and she didn't mind integrating that learning into her work. So I think the time that she had in Rome, and even in her diaries and journals, she would constantly refer to works of art that she's uh, seen whether it's classical sculpture or Renaissance painting. And even when she doesn't mention things, of course, when one actually looks at the works, uh, one can see that uh, she did have, like some, certain other artists of the 20th century, she did approach her own work with the ideas of previous and past art, as well as her contemporaries in mind. So I would say Rome was important to her, and uh, Munich, too. I think the experience of the late realist paintings, salon paintings in the German sphere, and particularly uh, symbolism and Jugendstil, had a, a profound influence on her work on many different levels. You know, there are one or two examples one could point to where she actually, for example, takes a painting by Franz von Stuck 
and you know we'll make some kind of riff on that we'll play with it uh, as an idea so she was a very conscious uh, artist someone who joins together i think what we've really shown in this exhibition joins together that twin duality from the turn of the century of realism and symbolism on the one hand you have this tremendous attention to detail and at the other hand, you have this amazing um, vocabulary and ability to deal with, you know, sort of all of the elements of her art uh, in, in painting. The great example in the catalog is the Franz van Stuck Medusa and how in 1908, so right in the middle of when Stedheimer is bouncing around the continent, she makes uh, a head of Medusa using her sister. <laughs> right. Well, there is that element to it, you know, this idea that she plays, she takes, as it were, the classical idea of the woman who turns men into stone, and she turns that around by taking uh, an image by a modern master and transforms it into a, 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 to anyone who is inside her circle into a satire of her youngest sister. It's really quite charming and amazing. <laughs> in, in your catalog essay, you point to Gustav Klimt, and I think for me, the clearest example of Stedheimer looking at Klimt is also an Eddie picture, if you will, a 1923 portrait of my sister in which Eddie is on a chaise lounge of a sort, kind of floating through space, much in the way that Klimt sends women floating through space across his canvases. Yeah, there, that particular series is very, very interesting, the portraits of the three sisters, because the way, you know, we hang it in the exhibition, it is a, a kind of a triptych, you know, it is something, as I say, she had such a, a sense and depth of historical as well as contemporary knowledge of art that she could utilize uh, many, many days. She had a very, very wide vocabulary. And uh, what was even more, I think, interesting and very much in the symbolist tradition, uh, something that we, I think, really found and ex explored, tried to explore in this show, was the idea that she wasn't just a painter. That, you know, unlike art, artists after 90, after World War II, the emphasis was very much on artists doing their own, sticking to their own corner of the artistic room, you know, just being a painter if you're a painter or a draftsperson or a sculptor and not intermixing the arts. But for Stedheimer, it's clear that intermixing was the name of the game. And so, uh, you know, she, we have everything in her oeuvre from painting to scenography to decor to poetry, you know. And so it's the whole symbolist uh, gamut. It's kind of Gesamtkunstwerk, you know, that everybody was interested in at the end of the 19th century. But no one could quite see how it would turn out or work out in the 20th. We'll, we'll come to Stedheimer's interest in the performing arts in a moment. But let's get her back into the United States at, at the end of, I'm sorry, at the outbreak of World War One. Detheimer, who's now 43 and who has spent much of the last decade shuttling back and forth between Europe and, and Metro New York, returns to America more or less for good. And you note that she settles down during the war years into portraiture. Of all things, why portraiture? Well, I think we've not, in our show at the museum, what we try to do is to work with the public through the art. At the Jewish Museum, we really want to show, you know, the great, the great works, works that are visually very compelling. Uh, that said, we do have a responsibility to explore the context for this work. 
We didn't go too deeply, neither in the catalogue nor in the book, but I do think it's important that during the war, she had personal disappointments that were rather profound artistically. And the first was her failure as an exhibitor at Nodler Gallery, where she had a one-person show. She was very fortunate, very privileged to have a one-person show at Nodler, but which the press were very lukewarm about, and which, as she noted in her diary, actually no one bought anything from the show, a very disappointment. Uh, secondly, she'd been working since 1912 on a ballet of her own, her own imagination, something that she wrote the libretto for, she designed uh, costumes uh, for, and eventually was planning on bringing the Ballet Russe to New York in 1916 to perform. But this, unfortunately, by 1917 had failed, and again, there'd been disagreements, and no one has really figured out why, but for some reason the ballet was never performed. So she'd spent a great deal of her life, her time, I'm working on two projects that really did not come to fruition. And I think there was some disappointment, and that disappointment turned into a, a kind of, or emphasized an aspect of her cutting a wit and her view of the world. And uh, of course, what she began to do was uh, have these salons where friends would be invited, a very uh, elite and uh, cultivated circle of friends, um, Americans and uh, Europeans fleeing the war who would not only comment on her art, but also would become subjects of her art. And these portraits are very, you know, they're very loving portraits, of course. Like any artwork, you have to be involved passionately with the subject. But uh, at the same time, they do have elements to them that are quite uh, cutting and uh, tell us a great deal about the individuals, at least from Florine Stettheimer's perspective. And so I think this idea of the satirical portrait of the 1920s is one of her uh, great contributions to modernism. And one could look at other examples uh, amongst both Americans, French artists and German artists of the period, I think, if you were trying to contextualize them. It's just that no one ever has done that. And so they seem very unique and somewhat difficult to comprehend, really. They, they really are fairly astonishing. There are a number of the show, number in the show, including um, the portrait of Henry McBride, which is at Smith College in Northampton, portrait of Joseph Hergesheimer, and, and, and so on. Do you have um, a favorite one that you think really kind of sums up her approach? Yes. The Hergesheimer did not make it into the show. In fact, Yale has two very important and interesting, if you're looking at the 20s as a cultural epoch in the United States, the Hergesheimer uh, and the portrait of Carl van Vechten are really two of the greatest writers of that period. And uh, so it's fitting that they are up at the Beinecke, uh, which has the you know, Yale collection of American literature. But we, we don't have them in the show, but we do have. We do have about six others. And these include not only the Henry McBride, as you mentioned, but also the uh, portrait of Marcel Duchamp and Rose Selavy from a private collection, which must be, I think, and, uh, you know, you have, may be able to have a photograph of this image on your, on your website, but it does have the most amazing frame in which the initials, the monogram of Duchamp is re repeated around the frame, like some railway station in Russia, you know, around 1920 or something, and like these letters look like as though they're made out of chromium capital letters or something. And of course, 
I do believe it's the only painted representation we have of Rose Selavy in the history of art. So it's an extra in terms of sheer documentation. <laughs> it's a work that's absolutely on its own. Plus, we do have that amazing picture that is reproduced in the catalogue of Duchamp as the uh, like the veil of Veronica, that Vera icon of this his head floating on a grey background. Uh, it's an extraordinary picture from now at Springfield uh, Museum of Art. Yeah, and I I love the I love the little portrait of Louis Bernheimer as well. For many of the works that we had include wanted to include in this exhibition we did actually do the jewish museum did actually do quite a lot of uh, conservation work to make sure the works were stable enough to travel and to be exhibited and i think the the portrait it's actually from the fleming museum at the university of vermont it's a portrait of louis bernheimer who was related to her by uh, related to florine stedheimer by marriage that little portrait when I saw it, was rather dark, and really was. I, I saw the interest of it, but I, you know, it wasn't. Didn't look like the greatest painting. But after conservation, it has taken on that kind of incandescent white color of the interior of the room, that is so evocative of her own interests and in, in painting. I really, you know, she really did consider herself a devotee of light, and of the sun. And uh, to see that picture restored and brought back to to a condition that uh, approximates how it looked in 1922 is is really a, it's a joy for me to see that in the show. You mentioned she had one commercial gallery exhibition, and it was neither a critical nor commercial success. So she started throwing what she called her birthday parties. What what were they, and and kind of what were they they built around? Well, we are fortunate, Tyler, in that uh, one of the pictures, not included in the exhibition, but it is shown in the book, actually depicts one of these Stettheimer salons. The idea was that given that her show at Nodler had been a failure and given her feeling that she never wanted to expose herself to that kind of oblivion <laughs> ever again, meant that she had to, um, she did show in group shows. In fact, she was a, a founder and an, a member of a number of artist societies, including the Society of Independent Artists in America. But she, when she showed in those exhibitions, the works were shown alongside the, you know, scores of other paintings by quite different artists, and so they tended to get lost. But in her salons, in her studio, at the Beaux-Arts studio buildings on 40th Street, or and even at home in Alwyn Court after 1926, they would have parties. And I think the idea was that Florine would install her work so that people could come and not only make conversation about their own art and what they were doing, either in music or photography or, or even film, but would talk also about her painting and give her the kind of feedback that every artist uh, really needs in order to go forward. And so those parties, you know, of course, they were also... Cultural in a, culturally bound in a sense because it was the epoch of prohibition and uh, the in those days you know, in fact I think one of Van Vechten's last novels from around 1930 is actually entitled Parties which I, I always thought was a silly name for a, a novel but in fact when you read his book you realize that parties were the only way you could get a drink in 1929 you know <laughs> so uh, <laughs> there was that added 
there was that added i don't know whether they had bootleggers run at the uh, actually uh, present at the uh, at the stadtheimer salons but they certainly benefited from uh, van vechten's uh, contacts in that area and uh, of course it was a it was a highly um, it was a kind of almost a university seminar kind of thing i imagine it was where they really exchanged ideas both from the continent and also newer ideas about what american art was and could be in the 20th century that were very important for her thinking. So pushing from 1929 into the 30s and even the 40s, what were Stedheimer's cathedral paintings, Broadway, Fifth Avenue, Wall Street, and art? And what traditions were they addressing or engaging? Yes, the uh, cathedrals began in the late 20s, actually just about the time that uh, Florine was being invited by Virgil Thompson to collaborate on the opera Four Saints in Three Acts. It's interesting that those two things happened simultaneously. And during that period, she she did actually exhibit one of the cathedrals at the Whitney Museum of American Art, and it was well-received by a number of writers, people actually from her circle, Arnold Genthe and others, wrote about those works and described them as probably in terms, again, of an extension of that witty and satirical and very uh, knowing and uh, multi-leveled sense that she brought to all of her work since she came back to America in 1914. This idea of looking at modern life, and in this case, dividing modern life according to a schema, of uh, major areas of the city, the Cathedral of Broadway being the first, the Cathedral of uh, Fifth Avenue, the Cathedral of Wall Street, and ultimately the Cathedral of Art. And so it was as though she had a she was demonstrating this incredible understanding that modern culture in America was going to be obviously was founded on capital and finance. And that it was really also about uh, mass culture, because the the Cathedral of uh, Broadway, of course, has in it's a very bold painting. It has in the very center of it a silver screen. You know, it's kind of an extraordinary picture in 20th century art, and I think in some ways anticipatory of uh, the gold diggers of 1934. If you were to see the the frame of that uh, painting, it looks exactly like the kind of designs that were hung around Ginger Rogers' neck, neck as she's singing "We're in the Money." <laughs> you know, it's like it's she really has that sense of the kind of fortunes that were being made through the transition from Broadway to Hollywood, and so you have mass culture, you have mass media, you have capital. And then you have uh, high art, uh, high art at the at the Metropolitan, the Museum of Modern Art, and the Whitney, and also, as it were, mass culture, uh, or at least a kind of uh, consumer culture, in the Cathedral of Fifth Avenue. The, oh, each of the paintings are addressing major concepts and major ideas to do with modern culture. So, they, in a way, I see them as a testament, a testamentary work of her her own art and also as an amazing contribution and uh, documentation 
of American culture just before uh, World War II. Of course, um, uh, there is also the aspect that, uh, with, as with all of her work, what one needs to bear in mind is that she was not only uh, a great wit and not only has a tremendous sense of iconography and subject matter, but they're also painted in an exquisite manner too. And so, you know, they have all of the bizarre of uh, the spectacle of the uh, the age of the silver screen in the 1930s and yet behind it all is the sense of this witty understanding and play with those um, the very subjects that she's treating in the cathedrals of fifth avenue stedheimer kind of leaves herself in iconographic form in in the painting uh, on the grill of the automobile on the lower right there is an sf monogram and the license plate says NY31. The painting was made in 1931. And Florine Stedheimer underneath underneath that on the plate. One of the other things about these paintings in particular, lots of Stedheimer paintings over many decades, but these in particular, is that they have a particularly, as you noted, theatrical evocation of space. They, they're kind of stage sets that she, that she paints and creates. We hinted earlier that Stedheimer was interested in, in, in the stage, can you are there links between her interest in the stage and and these paintings and if so can you um connect them yes it's a very important we felt i think I, we researched this and prepared the show over a period of about 26 months or so i would say probably after about a year it became increasingly evident that the performative and the idea of theater was extremely important to this artist and that she would probably have been involved even more in the theatre if the times had been auspicious. We do know that there are two other ballets that she designed or began designs for. One of them, the last one, was called Pocahontas. An earlier one as, uh, was set in the English court in the 17th century. So she had a fascination and an ability and a drive to create designs, to create even the libretti for what she termed her choreographic spectacles. And so the issue in terms of the exhibition was really how we convey that, because conveying performance in a museum situation is not so easy. Performance takes place in time. You know, it, you, you, you create the event and then it's over. All you're left with is the documentation. So we were able, what we tried to do was to create a kind of symmetry between that early ballet that she wrote under the influence of the Ballet Russe in between 1912 and 1916, never performed, the Orpheus of the Four Arts Ball. And then to compare that with her experience after 1929, 20 years later, when Virgil Thompson asked her to collaborate on the opera that he'd uh, worked on, with, which had the libretto by Gertrude Stein. And it was uh, clear, if, if you look at the writings about that opera, that during the show at Hartford, where it was first exposed at the Wadsworth Athenaeum, and then for its long run on Broadway at the 44th Street Theatre and the Empire Theatre, that Florine was very, very involved, and that it was really her designs, the use of cellophane, the use of extraordinary costuming, the use of lights, and so on and so forth, that along with the choreography of Frederick Ashton, probably accounted in a great way for the success, the tremendous public success of this rather bizarre text of Stein 
and the music of Virgil Thompson. So, yeah, I think it was very, you know, it was very important to her. And as you said, throughout her paintings, you can imagine that it's almost as though one imagines in her studio, she was conducting her own kind of theater in a way through through all of these works of art and the subjects that she chose, you know, in a way it's a little bit like Hogarth in the, or even other painters of the 18th century who were fascinated by the theater and in their own works tried to create these little theatrical boxes, whether it's Hogarth or Jacques-Louis David, you know, they all have that relationship to drama. And um, yeah, so we, we felt it was important. I think it's been it's successful, particularly towards the end of the show, because we did find, along with all the ephemera and photographs made by some very excellent photographs of the 1930s, we did also have this wonderful option through the Museum of Art and Art to show a six-minute piece of film that was made by Julian Levy during the first performance, the dress rehearsal, actually, of the Wadsworth Athenaeum performance. And so people who come to the museum can actually see not only the maquettes uh, Florine made to create the costumes and designs, see not only the photographs and the booklets and other ephemera, but can actually experience the, uh, the way these sets looked through this piece of experimental film. So we're quite happy about that uh, solution. Finally, I wouldn't be a good painting nerd if I didn't ask about Stedheimer's palette. It's as distinct as any early 20th century American palette. Uh, Stedheimer's colors don't seem to exist anywhere else in American art. Where do you think she gets her color from? Well, as we all know, color is one of the greatest elements of an artist's practice that is able to convey emotion. And so any artist who is interested in working on on the emotions of the spectator pays a great deal of attention to tone and the way the colors are arranged. And so in Stedheim's case, what I'm feeling as I walk through is that she very, very carefully selected the tonalities of the work in there's a tremendous decorum in her work she really selected the tones and the colors that were appropriate to the sensitivity of the emotion that she was trying to convey and so it can expand as you said it's tyler it's it's really wide it goes all the way from silver gray to you know brilliant reds you know all the way from gold to like the preciousness of gold all the way through to black. And uh, of course, I, I did mention that white earlier on, this what I call this cocaine white, this incandescent white, seemed to be a, a great favorite of hers. But um, in terms of influence, I would say symbolism and fauvism as well, to a certain extent. The symbolism of, uh, of uh, the Nabi painters, for example, of the turn of the century, and also uh, the, the fauves, Durand and Matisse. All of these are, are feeding into her, her, her sense. But as you pointed out, it's, it's, it's so particular with Florine Stettheimer that you can almost identify her works from that uh, coloristic sense that she, she endows them with. Stephen Brown, thanks so much. Okay, wonderful, Tyler. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.